Well, welcome everybody to uh, Sunday School. Uh, we are working through all of our technical difficulties and we're growing in this. So please bear with us and give us feedback, whatever's helping and what is not. Um, and obviously we want to take some of the things we're learning uh, into the future. So that's a silver lining in all this. Thank God for technology and internet in this time. But we definitely look forward to uh, meeting with everyone in person soon. Uh, just so everyone knows today, uh, Jed's going to be the quiet moderator in the background for the most part, and he'll he'll be the only one reading any comments you post. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and walk through this slideshow, but I will pause a couple times during it uh, to see if there are any questions or comments. Jed will unmute all the microphones, but anytime you can post a question or comment, Jed will be reading those and he'll decide if he needs to interrupt me or not, or just kind of wait for that next break. Um, I did send out some handouts on Thursday through the church email. Uh, so if you have those, there's a lot more detail and references available, but I'm pretty much going to talk to the slides. And I think if all you have are the slides, that's great. I think it's going to work out just fine. So this is just the first of two part on the gospels overview and a comparison. Today, we're going to focus on really the, how the gospels differ. We can kind of see the what about it. And next week we'll talk about the why. Why did certain authors choose certain events and tell a story in, in a certain way? So for some of you, the today Sunday school is going to feel a lot more like school than a Sunday because it's going to have some statistics and some raw materials and facts. And I'll try not to overly bore you with that. Um, it's just the tip of the iceberg. And for those of you who want to geek out with me, uh, I can send you a lot more data uh, if, if you want. But it's just something to kind of get you thinking uh, lead you down the path of some more study if you're interested in that. But the most important things I'll say will be on the, the first and the last slide. So please um, listen up for that. And just as people who are Bible-centered, we want to have some kind of confidence in how our Bible is put together. And if nothing else, just so if you're ever faced with certain criticisms out there, if there's any doubts about your Bible, just know that there are tons and tons of scholarship there are people out there, there are experts who can answer those questions. So don't feel lost. Don't abandon your faith at the first uh, challenge. Uh, please go and find those resources that are out there. Let's go ahead and we're going to open up in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for Zoom. We thank you for technology. We thank you for giving us the means to, to learn and to fellowship and worship today, even the ability to have weddings uh, through the internet. Help us as we learn today not to be puffed up with facts um, and things to, uh, to, to show people. We, uh, but we just want to grow in our faith, grow in our confidence that you have preserved a revelation for us. We pray that you would motivate us and equip us to proclaim and share the gospel that's so precious to us uh, with all we know. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so what does gospel mean? We call these the four gospels. Of course, gospel itself is just a word that means good news. And Paul takes uh, great care in 1 Corinthians 15 to defend the fact that these are real historical facts. This is, these things truly happen. We don't go to the gospels just for some ethics or some spiritual truths. This stuff actually matters. And it's good to us who receive it, who believe in it, and we're saved by it. Now, Paul, even in that one chapter, kind of gives us at least two senses of the good news. 
first of all, there's a narrow gospel. There's, there's a center of that message of Jesus, and that's his death, burial, and resurrection. And Paul calls things of first importance. And so oftentimes when we use the word gospel, that's what we're talking about. What are the real narrow basics of someone must understand and believe to be saved? And so the gospel writers we're going to see actually spend quite a bit um, of their space on that final week of Jesus's life. So we really understand why did Jesus have to die? But Paul goes on to show a much broader um, idea of what good news means is that the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ just don't pop out of nowhere. They're, they're within a much broader story. He did those things in accordance with the scriptures. And then even as we carry on, we get the Great Commission in Matthew. As we go forward, we look forward to the resurrection of the dead at the end of the ages. And so in one sense, the good news is all of redemption history. And at the center of that is the person and work of Jesus. And at the center of that is his death, burial, and resurrection. And so in Mark chapter 1, we hear from him that Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. You see there that Mark is talking about a fulfillment of time, something that has been talked about in the Old Testament. And it's going to fulfill all the purposes of God. The kingdom of God is at hand, so it's starting to unfold, but it's going to continue to unfold until we're all in glory. And we need to repent and believe in the gospel. Now, Mark is saying that at a time before Jesus has died and been resurrected. And so the good news is already in play. So everything about Jesus leads up to that final week. Uh, a lot of time in this time of year, people will come to church just for Easter. Uh, and they, maybe they know the Christmas story, they know the Easter story, and they don't really understand the why. Why Jesus had to become a baby. Why did he have to live on his life and why he had to die. And that, of course, is the most important. All right, next slide. Now, you may not be able to see all the words here, depending on how big your device is. It's not really that important. I just want to show the slide to make um, some broad points. So on the left side there, you have a bunch of events of Jesus's life um, parsed out. And that, depending on who you look at, that could be anywhere from 150 to 350 separate events. It might be a parable that he teaches. It might just be a conversation he has with someone. It might be a healing or other miracle. And so you start to parse all those out. And on the far right, you have four columns that show Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And immediately what you find is, as you start to lay those next to each other, you try to put those in a chronological order, a time order, and you start to see that the Gospels don't really tell the story in the same order. So for instance, on this table, when you see a yellow highlighted box, that shows that a gospel writer's content is going out of order. So you can see there on Matthew, he, it's chapter 12, jumps back to chapter 5 through 8, jumps forward to chapter 11 again. And that's because this, the, whoever created this table decided that they would tell it as if Mark was telling the correct chronology, which forces the other gospels into a different order. Now, of course, he could reverse that, right? He could put everything in the order for Luke, say, and that would force Mark to be out of order. And usually when we're talking about chronology, the decisions come down to Mark or Luke, or none of them being accurate. There are people who argue for Matthew being the most chronological, but for the most part, we'll see next week that Matthew organizes his material around Jesus's teaching as opposed to a strict chronology. So other things we can see here is that look at John. 
John, that first row has John and no one else sharing that material. And then the rest of that page, John doesn't share any of that stuff. And that's quite usual. John is very unique. So when you want a real picture, a synthesized summary picture of the life of Christ, we typically look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke together. Those pretty much follow each other. And that's why they're called the synoptic gospels. They give us a synopsis or a summary of Jesus's life. All right, on to the next. All right, there we go. All right, so hopefully you're on with, you see the pie charts there. Uh, and those gospels are presented in relative size. Luke is the largest gospel. Matthew is slightly smaller. And then John, and then Mark is the smallest of the gospels. And over on the left side, you can see the synoptic gospels. Oops, here we go. Um, so basically most of Mark, what this is showing is most of Mark is kind of copied by Luke and Matthew. Hardly any of Mark is unique and left to his own. A lot of people think that Mark was probably written first and that Matthew and Luke started their gospels by taking Mark's material, arranging it slightly differently for different purposes that we'll see next week, and then adding other material. And so when all three of the synoptics share something, we call it the triple tradition. And then when Matthew and Luke share something that Mark doesn't, we call it the double tradition. And of course, each of the gospels have something that's unique just to their, uh, to their gospel. So you can see that about half of Luke and Matthew um, contain Mark's material. And then about a quarter contain stuff that only the two of them share and so on. And then over on the right side, we have John all by himself. 90% of John's gospel is unique to him. And only 10% of his material are actually found in the synoptics. And usually when that happens, it's actually in a triple tradition where it shares it with all of them. There's a lot of more stats I could go through, not that important. Um, but if anyone has any specifics uh, they want to answer, I'm going to go ahead and pause there for our first round of questions and probably mostly for clarity on the last two slides. So are there any questions? All right, either no questions or you guys can't hear me. All right, we will carry on. All right, so now we're on to, someone talking? Yeah, it was, it was just me. Um, yeah, I wasn't paying super close attention. I apologize. Do you want me to unmute everybody or do you want to have, nobody has posted anything in comments. Yeah, please, please unmute Jed, just to see if there are any okay. questions. Anybody have any questions? All right. Well, if you think of any, we'll go to the next uh, the next break. You can ask them. All right. We're now on the map for those. Uh, and so I'm going to give a real thumbs um, thumbnail sketch of Jesus's life in this one slide, and then we'll go into some more details in the coming slides. So basically, you have Israel here. Remember, you would have Syria to the north, Jordan to the east, Egypt down here to the southwest. And Israel is broken up into three main areas. You've got Galilee up here in the north. You should recognize some places like Nazareth, Cana where his first miracle, Capernaum where he later lives, the Sea of Galilee. And then you have Jerusalem down here in the south, the capital where we have lots of stories, especially in the final week there, in the area called Judea. 
And of course, uh, Jews would typically be in Judea or Galilee and they would as quickly as possible pass through Samaria in the middle here. And then we have some other areas beyond the sea, it's sometimes said. And so we have Decapolis, the 10 cities. We have Perea or an area beyond the Jordan. Here's the Jordan River right here down the middle, south of the Sea of Galilee. You might remember the Syrophoenician woman or the Canaanite woman. We have Tyre and Sidon in the north. So some of these key places that we hear about. And basically, the Synoptic Gospels are going to present Jesus as pretty much, obviously, early, his, his birth and everything. Every year, they would travel back down and forth to Jerusalem for the annual Passover. And just for some perspective, that's at least a three-day journey one way every time they do that. Maybe up to five days if they break somewhere. So that's, that's a big thing to walk down to Jerusalem and, and back. But basically, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are going to talk about Jesus' ministry all in Galilee. So just tons of stories of parables and healings and miracles and conversations, both with his disciples and with the crowds. And basically, he's going to just gain in popularity. People are going to come from far and wide to hear this preacher in the desert and to come and be healed. Uh, and then slowly but surely, the religious leaders are not going to like what Jesus is saying, and the opposition is going to grow. And so he's going to kind of withdraw from the crowds. He's going to send out his 12. He's going to send out his 72, and they're going to be preaching and healing. And slowly his message starts to change as he starts to gain opposition. And it's almost like he just takes one long procession and starts to make his way on the way, on the road, a very common phrase, and start headed towards Jerusalem. And you start to hear him start to predict his death and the disciples start to get really confused on what's going on and what does this mean? What happened to this, this conqueror and this savior from Rome that has come to us? And they just slowly start to understand it isn't really until the death and resurrection that they look back on what Jesus said and understood what he was talking about. And then, of course, into the final week, all those stories and parables and leading up in the very week we're about to... Um, remember and celebrate this week. So if you just look at the synopsis, it would, it would be as if all this happened in one year, that Jesus did all his preaching and healing and he kind of moved towards Jerusalem to that final week, to that narrow gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection. And yet we now know from John's gospel, the unique gospel, that there were at least four Passovers. So over three years of his public ministry. And so we'll see as we look at the tables to come that we actually know that during all this Galilean ministry that Jesus was making his way down Jerusalem and back up, making his way down and back up. And of course, we get a couple, couple instances like the woman at the well in Samaria along his journeys. And so as we now look at his chronology a little closer, uh, you'll, you're going to see how John gives us those important time markers to understand what's going on. And so we're going to look at uh, five slides here very briefly. I'm not going to read through each line there. But basically broken up Jesus' life into five sections. His early life before his public ministry, and then each of his three years of ministry. It's a year of preparation, a year of popularity, a year of opposition. And then into the last week, again, where so much content is, is um, shared with us in the Gospels. All right, so first slide here. Let me just explain this table to you a little bit. So at the top here, I have all the different um, colors that you saw on that pie chart earlier. Right, so the triple tradition would be in purple, the double tradition in blue, and so forth. 
Um, and so that you can kind of put those two things side by side and understand what's going on here. And then I basically put a new row each time I thought that the bulk of the content kind of changed what authors were dealing with it. And so I don't, I don't have even close to all the events of his life on these tables. It's just a big picture view of Jesus as he does that Galilean ministry and slowly makes his way to Jerusalem for the final week. So on this first one, you can see right away that Mark doesn't deal at all with Jesus's early life. We'll see that next week, how Mark is a very narrative-based, fast-paced gospel, and he just jumps right into Jesus's public ministry. So all the stories you're used to from Christmas pretty much come from Matthew and Luke. And of course, John, being the unique guy that he is, he gives us this prelude. He talks about Jesus before he came into the world, and he was the light. And John has a very different uh, emphasis in his gospel than the synoptics, as Paul has been teaching us. All right, on to the next slide. We're into the first year of Jesus's ministry. And notice here, the triple tradition really picks up. And so all the gospels, including John, share about his baptism and the temptations. And then uh, the three synoptics talk about the temptations in the desert. And notice, like I said, the synoptics would jump from row seven to row nine. They would just keep Jesus in Galilee as he starts his healing and teaching ministry. And yet from John, we know that he actually went down. He changed water into wine at Cana up in Galilee. And then he travels down for the first Passover, so, which means he obviously went down to Jerusalem. There we have an, emphasis, uh, an incident where he cleanses the temple. And then on his travels back, we meet the woman at the well. Now, I'll pause just for a second. When John says that he cleanses the temple here, this is a great example where we kind of have to make a decision. The synoptics talk about one cleansing of the temple, but it's in the final week when Jesus is about to go to have the Lord's Supper and then to be crucified. John puts it way up early in his gospel. So it is possible that John just puts this out of a different order than the others, and it's the same temple cleansing. But it's also very possible that there are two temple cleansings. And that's the kind of thing you just don't know for certain as you're reading through the Gospels. You kind of make a decision. Sometimes Jesus teaches something that sounds really similar to another passage. Maybe it's the same incident. Maybe it's a different parable. Or maybe he told the same sermon or parable in two different places with two different crowds. All those things are possible. And that just makes piecing this stuff together in a real precise and confident manner a bit of a challenge. All right, on to his second year of ministry. Again, John helps us with the time marker there. We know there's a second Passover. And then he goes back up into Galilee. Again, continuing in Galilee uh, through his teaching. This is where we get the Sermon on the Mount. Um, John the Baptist sends his messengers back and forth to question Jesus. Lots of parables, lots of miracles and healings. And just before that third year of ministry, John says the third Passover is at hand. We have the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus up in the Sea of Galilee, walking on the water, calming the storms. By the way, when I have a, a little X here versus a big X uh, on the right side, that means that that author did contribute in that section, just less compared to the others. All right, and on to the third year of his ministry. Now, this is when Jesus is going to start going outside of Galilee. Goes up to Tyre and Sidon, goes out beyond the sea. Uh, beyond the Jordan, things like that. And now we start to see a real turn of preparation for the end and the Mount of Transfiguration. And we're going to look a lot of that next week. Uh, Peter's confession that you are the Christ. 
We have the Feast of Tabernacles. Thanks to John. We know that he's back down in Jerusalem for that. Um, and then a couple of the Gospels, the double tradition kicks in. And we see that he now is down in Jerusalem, but then jumps back um, over to the right of our map to the east a little bit. And we've got lots of teachings there. A famous one, the Good Samaritan. We've got the story of Mary and Martha, where Martha wants to be busy and Mary is worshiping at Jesus' feet. Uh, the Feast of Dedication, the raising of Lazarus, and so forth. So many details I haven't shared, obviously. And then we finally get that final journey to Jerusalem. Now, this is going to be getting towards the end, and Jesus is going to ramp up his talk about predicting the suffering that's going to take place. And then we have the final week. So much packed in there. Remember again, about a quarter of Matthew and Mark, about 37% of Mark, uh, sorry, Matthew and Luke, uh, about a quarter, about 37% of Mark, and almost half of John is spent on this final week. And of course, these are the things, hopefully you're all as families are gonna be thinking about these things and talking about them through this coming week leading up to Easter. So we've got the cleansing of the temple. Of course, we have the Lord's Supper. Uh, John has a lot of material that the other gospel writers don't about what he says there at the, at the Last Supper and in the garden, uh, his high priestly prayer. And then, of course, we have the arrest, trial, crucifixion of going out to the Mount of Olives, going to the Garden of Gethsemane, hopefully the stories that we're very familiar with, and then the death, burial, and resurrection. All right, I want to pause there again. Jed, if you can unmute and see if there are any questions or if I've lost anyone in all of this. Hang on just a second. All right. Hello, everybody. Are there any questions? Yeah. Is that it? No, there's one more slide. All right. Doesn't seem like there are any questions. All right. Stand by all. All right. It's all then, yours, Kevin. Okay. Well, this is the most important. So if I've lost in all the details, um, go ahead and listen up again right now. Um, so how do you deal with the synoptic quote problem? That is, a lot of skeptics will look at the fact that the gospel writers don't tell the same events in the same order. There's details that are different. And so in their mind, the Gospels are unreliable. Uh, we can't trust them as history, uh, as real news, and therefore we can't trust them all. And so they'll poke a lot of holes and people kind of turn into linguistic gymnastics to try to prove their point. And so let me just walk through some of the, at a very broad level, some of the defenses against those skeptics. And then I want to talk about how important it all is. Uh, first of all, the traditional defense is kind of focused on the author and the audience. So just a recognition that the, the gospel writers had different purposes as they wrote. And we're going to look at those in more detail next week. Uh, and then there's different literary devices of the time. And so none of them claim to be chronological, actually. They just kind of present it as if it was. And then there's things like periscoping, where they might focus on one detail versus another. For instance, one of the big ones that people talk about are, were there one angel or two angels at the tomb? One gospel writer says there's one, and one says there's two. Well, it's not really a contradiction when you just focus on one of the two angels, right? 
unless that gospel writer says there was one and only one and not two, uh, then that would obviously be a contradiction. But that's quite clear. Whenever we tell a story, we often focus on certain details and not on others. And then the last thing is just that the, the very fact that there's diversity from the gospel writers uh, actually adds to the credibility. Clearly, these guys didn't get in the room together and conspire to write a story together just to prove their point. They went and interviewed their own witnesses, or they were eyewitnesses, and they told the story. And that tells us that Jesus, for instance, in his resurrection, appeared to so many people. It wasn't the type of thing that you could just contrive. Um, the other thing, though, now in the last generation, 20, 30 years, has been a real growing reality that these biographies, these narratives, these gospel narratives, were written in the genre of what's an ancient biography, a Roman Greco biography. And Tim kind of mentioned this when he introduced Acts a couple weeks ago. And so in the ancient world, when a biography was written, it wasn't just to give us some information um, about someone's life. It's to be instructional. Actually, they were trying to, it's kind of like narrative with theology, not just recorded events, but what is God's verdict on those events? Or as Tim said, prophetically interpreted history. And so really the narrative writers back then were going to tell a story in a way that helped you see the character um, of the person. They weren't so interested. There was no expectation that the details of the stories were actually that precise. Look at this picture now, just a real quick um, definitions when we use the word accuracy or precision. On the far left, we've got something that's accurate. So if you kind of look at the average of where someone has shot at this bullseye here, it's pretty close, it's pretty close to the middle. But they're kind of spread out a bit. In the second picture, you have something that would be precise but not accurate. And so really consistent, whoever's shooting here is shooting in the same spot, but they're not very close to the bullseye compared to the first one. Of course, if you want to win the Olympics, if we ever have Olympics again, then you would want to be precise and accurate. And that's kind of the, the expectation for modern biographies today is we want real precision in the details. We want it to be accurate. But that wasn't how the first century was. It was more like this first picture where we kind of get you in the ballpark. We kind of are pointing you to that character at the center of the story. But how we get you there just wasn't that important. And so there's a few different ways that they did that. They might do it through adaption. And so, for instance, the, if you see the children's Sunday school posted this morning about the paralytic, in a gospel that's written to Jewish audience, Matthew, it says that they dug through the roof to get the paralytic down to Jesus. But Luke, when he's writing to the Greeks, he says that they removed tiles to get down into the house. Well, what's going on? Did Luke mess it up? Well, of course not. He's still not the whole point of the story was that they had to kind of get through this house and get to Jesus. That's all that mattered. And the details of how to get there just weren't that important. You could think of it as a, a portrait versus a photograph. So if you just want a real pre precise, factually based picture of something, you could take a picture, right? There, there it is, that's what it looks like. But if you have an artist sit there and, and, and uh, draw a painting, within that accurate picture, it's, it's going to start to take on a mood through the lighting or the highlighting or whatever artists do. Uh, so you're going you're gonna to get an accurate picture of a scene, but, but also with the author's intended mood that's added to it. And that's kind of like what these biographies are like, a lot more like a painting as opposed to a photo. 
A second use in uh, ancient biographies was in paraphrasing. So you'll see in the gospel, sometimes uh, one gospel says something is a statement, another gospel presents it as a question. Or they might even have, uh, for instance, in Matthew 12, G, uh, the Pharisees ask what's lawful to do on the Sabbath. But the same story in Luke 14, it's Jesus asking the question. So same conversation, same topic, but different people are saying different things. Again, that's completely normal in the ancient biography. Or in Matthew 8, the centurion comes to Jesus to help save his slave. But in Luke 7, the elders come to Jesus on the, on the centurion's behalf. That's just normal. It's, it's not a big deal to the ancient world. And the last uh, example would be something like simplification, things called compression and spotlighting, where, for instance, Mark tends to tell less stories, but in much more vivid detail. He's, it's like he's writing a script. Where Matthew will take that same story and tell it in a much shorter version, much abbreviated version. And by doing that, Matthew can fit in a lot more stories and a lot more teaching. And so all those are very similar uh, in all the different ancient biographies. So if you understand that, if you take the gospel writings in their day, in their genre, then a lot of these, quote, problems just kind of vanish. And actually you understand what they're getting at a lot better. So now I just really want to ask, how important is all this? So I've spent lots of hours doing this. This is something I've always wanted to do. Thanks, coronavirus. You've given me the time to do this. I've wanted to have, a, just in my mind, a nice sense of, of the life of Christ. You can see pretty immediately as you start to throw these events back and forth and you know, listen to one writer and listen to another. It's, it's incredibly difficult to feel really confident and precise about that chronology. On one level, I would say that insofar as we want to defend the credibility and therefore the trustworthiness of the Bible, I think there is some, um, there's some good to doing this. I'm glad we have experts that have done this that can answer the skeptics. Uh, we don't want to get to the place where, well, it's just not important. It's not a big deal if there are errors. It's not a big deal if they didn't really know Jesus' life because we get to the point of just thinking that there are spiritual and ethical truths here. And it's not really news, right? You can't have a gospel, good news, unless it's actual historical news. And that's an important place to stand. But once you're at the place that you trust the scriptures and the credibility you think is defended, I would say that maybe spending all this time to get the chronology precise isn't all that important. In fact, if the authors are telling the narrative with theology and they have a purpose in that, we're gonna, again, we're gonna look at that more next week. If that's true, then piecing these things together in, in kind of a new gospel into a new story almost defeats the purpose. And that's kind of my aha moment. And the irony of all my hours in this is that maybe I'm right back to square one where I shouldn't be spending so much time trying to piece all this out. Because if Matthew is telling the story in a certain way and piecing the teachings together in a certain way, I'm kind of losing what he's trying to tell me by recreating it in a different way. He's telling it for a purpose. And of course, we believe that the Holy Spirit is guiding him in that intent and in that purpose. Following this series, we're gonna have about six weeks on the Sermon on the Mount. So in about three weeks, we're gonna have a little exercise in class where we kind of compare biblical theology and systematic theology. And, and that challenge of reading a text for what it's worth, as opposed to putting it together in the big picture, in the, in the grand themes of the Bible. And sometimes I think we're a little too quick to jump to our system 
jump to the confession, jump to, to smooth out the tensions and logic between passages. Now there's a place for that that obviously has to happen at some point. But sometimes we just need to take the Bible at its word. We just need to read it for what it is. We can sometimes, um, I think, remove some of the intent in the authors by, by trying to be a bit too clever. And it's a, it's a tough thing. In our Bible study, we want to do both. We want to read the Bible straight through, and times we need to sit there and piece things together to get the big picture. All right, that's all I have. So I'd like to pause and any comments or questions. So Jen, if you could Hi. unmute. Thanks. Anybody have any comments or questions? Mm -hmm. Is this being recorded? Yes, we are recording it. <laughs> okay. Hey Keith, this is David. I just wanted to reiterate your comment about uh, the Holy Spirit leading the writers. And I think that's very important. I thought that was a good point. Yeah, one of the wonders to me of inspiration is that somehow you have really a single author writing this whole thing, right? The Holy Spirit. And yet does it in a way that keeps the own author's personality and writing style. Um, and I don't know how he does that. But it's amazing. Yeah, exactly. Anyone else? This is Jan Gonzalez. I just appreciate the way you put all of the charts and the things together for this Sunday school. It, uh, you did a really good job, and I appreciate it. Thanks, Janet. Hey, uh, Keith, this is Emmanuel. Can you hear me? Yes. Uh, yeah, uh, Rena has a question. Uh, she, uh, she's wondering if, uh, were there any controversies involving the canonization of these uh, gospel accounts? Well, everything I've said today would be disputed by somebody. <laughs> so there's always controversies. Um, I didn't look a lot in the last few weeks at the canon itself. My understanding of the canon, number one, is that if anything, they were conservative. Uh, they, they kept things that pretty much everyone already agreed and were already using and treating as scripture. Um, it wasn't really like, all right, let's take a vote and majority wins here. Um, as far as the Gospels go, though, you have lots of Gospels, lots more than the four that we have. But we'll look at this a little more next week with the dating. From an ancient perspective, these Gospels are written very, very early. At most, you're one person removed from Jesus. So two of them are eyewitnesses, two. Uh, and that's very close. Uh, things like the Gospel of Thomas were written over 100 years later. And so from a credibility standpoint, historically speaking, um, there's not a lot to dispute here unless you just want to find something. Thank you. Anyone else? Hey, Keith. Yep. This is Christy. Go ahead. Um, I, I have a quick question. Um, can you just briefly reiterate why John is separated from the other three in the first few slides? Well, uh, so as far as dating, I'll just kind of preview for next week. So 
from an evangelical perspective, a lot of people would say Mark was probably written in the 50s. So that's very close to Jesus's life. Matthew and Luke probably shortly after in the 60s. And then most people but John were in the 80s or the 90s. So you're talking 20, 30 years later. And so it's very possible that John, you know, thought there were three credible um, gospel accounts. He didn't really need to add to that. And perhaps he chose his material specifically to address things that the others didn't. Um, he clearly has a, it's really a theological treatise more than maybe the same type of narrative as the other. So he just has a different purpose uh, for the people he's writing to. Um, that's the best I can say. He, you'll see next week, John writes more to a universal audience where uh, Matthew is talking to the Jews, uh, Mark maybe to the Romans, Luke to the Greeks in general. And John is more to a universal audience uh, trying to prove that Jesus is the son of God. He's divine. And so um, I don't know much more than that. Thank you. If anyone else has answers to these questions, I'm happy to hear yours as well. Hey, Keith, this is Hannah. Could you send us a copy of the PowerPoint? Yeah, sure will. Um, I think, so this is one thing we have to decide going forward. Right now we have the website, which if you guys didn't know, all Sunday schools and sermons for the last many years are posted on our church website. Then of course we have two Facebook accounts and now we have Zoom and YouTube. So we're gonna try to figure out in the coming weeks the best place to consolidate all that. And so we'll definitely get that. But if anyone emails me, I can email that to you right away. And then we will hang those uh, website or wherever uh, we decide. Yeah, just to jump in on that, I'm working very hard on trying to uh, consolidate everything so that we have fewer um, various options for where things go. Anyone else? All right. Well, Emmanuel, are you still there? Would you mind closing us in prayer? Uh, sure, Pete. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you for this time of bringing us together online to um, to study about the Gospels, to study about uh, the life and ministry of your son. Uh, Lord, I thank you for having given us your word, uh, for prayer, for this fellowship. Uh, Lord, I thank you for what you're doing in our lives, uh, even in the midst of this uh, of this pandemic. Uh, I pray that you would uh, continue to prepare our hearts uh, for worship, uh, that your word, as it's proclaimed, um, would be used by your Holy Spirit to, to spread your gospel, uh, to bring those who do not know you to saving faith, and to equip your saints to be that salt and light you have commanded us to be. Thank you again, Lord, and uh, be with us as we worship you. In Christ's name I pray and ask these things. Amen. Amen. Blessings, everyone. See you next week.
And real quick before everybody jumps off, I just wanted to let people know that I am staying very closely on top of all the security concerns surrounding Zoom and the various other options that we have for online meetings. Um, and right now, even though there's a lot of um, discussion about Zoom, it's still the best option. And I'm making sure to take all the steps that we need to in order to prevent it from becoming a problem while we continue to use it. Thank you all.